0: Welcome to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Opera is a medium that always elicits strong emotions. That will certainly be the case this weekend when Professor Kyung Mi Choi's opera Pale Courage is performed. In this week's episode, guest host Professor Andy Trees sits down with Professor Choi to talk about her composition Pale Courage, a three act opera based on the true story of the composer's grand aunt who chose starvation as a way to fight for her dreams. Mi Choi is a native Korean composer, organist, poet, painter, and visual artist. She has received several prestigious awards and grants such as the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship, Robert Helps Prize, Aaron Copeland Award, John Donald Rock Musical Trust Fund Commission, Illinois Arts Council Fellowship, first prize from ASCAP-SIMUS Award, and second prize from V Concurso Internacional do Musica electro Custico do Sao Paulo. After receiving her B.S. degree in Chemistry and Science Education at Ewa Women's University, she completed her coursework in a master's program in Korean literature at Seoul National University before receiving her MM in composition at Georgia State University and her DMA in composition theory from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Choi is currently a professor of composition and director of the composition program at Roosevelt University where she teaches composition and electro-acoustic music. In this episode, Andy and Kwong Mi discuss the power of live performance and her family history and journey into the arts. Enjoy this powerful and engaging conversation.
1: Hello, this is Andy Trees, once again a guest hosting the podcast and Justice for All for Roosevelt University. I have a question for all of you. Are you tired of feeling like a pod person living in a basement with no windows, no chance for interaction? Haven't seen a live face except on TV in weeks. Well, I have good news. There's going to be a live performance coming up March 18th and 19th at 7:30. Hail Courage, an opera by Roosevelt's very own Professor Hyung-mi Choi. I'm delighted to have her here today to talk about this and other matters. Professor Choi, great to have you on the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful to have a chance to talk about this opera and for sharing this story.
1: So could you tell me a little bit, first of all, about the opera?
2: Yes, this opera is about uh, my grand-aunt, who chose to do a hunger strike to fight for her dream, to be educated. She was asked to get married to whom she never met because it was the tradition at the time in Korea, 20th century. And for noblemans, the tradition is for their children will be married without introducing to each other. And uh, for her, uh, who lost her mother three years ago for the particular scene of the opera, she wanted to uh, go to school because at the time, the missionary actually came in the Korean Peninsula and uh, trying to promote women's education, and which was very new at the time. So her father, who was a very uh, conservative figure at the time, tried not to send her uh, to school because that means she will not be a good candidate for a wife. So she wanted. he wanted to make sure he's not sending her to school. So for her, only way to resist was a hunger strike. And the conflict uh, went on and eventually a very stubborn father constantly forces her to Follow his direction, and eventually she ended up dying out of the starvation. And meantime, wow. yeah, meantime the meant to be a husband uh, knew this story and learned that his fiance to be uh, gone without even uh, knowing what was going on, and realized she wanted to be educated and she wanted to be independent. And that really changed and transformed the way he sees the world. And he decided to move out of that old tradition for himself and disconnect from the root of what he was part of. And he decided to honor uh, her death and that was the really uh, powerful uh, story because it's not just you know her death you know and ending there there was a transformation in uh, his life that impacted in a great deal so it is a really uh, just family story but also very unusual story so I wanted to Portrait, and uh, my aunt was actually a librettist, and it was her aunt who actually died. So it's a three-generation <laughs> family project.
1: Wow, that's I have to say that's an incredible story, and how what a perfect uh, coming full circle. Where now here you are, professor at a university, obviously incredibly well educated, and sort of not just living the life but now telling the story of this great aunt that mm-hmm. you know tried to get the education that you've received that's that's really very powerful. So I I'm curious as someone who's not very musically gifted at all. Um, that's an incredible story. How do you how do you turn that into music? How do you turn that into an opera? How do you begin to try to piece that together?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for asking. It's a very good question. First of all, uh, in order to write an opera, the libretto is very important part. So my aunt and myself, and actually there's an editor person who is a native speaker, my husband uh, become an editor of this uh, libretto. So we three uh, of us actually worked with an opera company who wanted to develop this opera together at West Edge Opera. So during uh, last summer, we met every week to polish the lines and making sure the line is convincing and storyline is uh, structurally well uh, sort of balanced. And once those uh, lines are all set, then as a composer, what we do is very specific study of how Language should be delivered, you know, the specific way of saying intonation. So, I do a lot of uh, singing out myself, especially not Mm -hmm. just actual pitch material, which is, uh, you know, high and low kind of uh, the material of the sound, but more rhythm, like what is the most uh, comfortable and convincing way of saying certain line. So, I do a lot of rhythmic uh, division it should be falling into three or four. So I did the rhythmic studies all together for entire libretto. And then I go into what kind of melodic line will be good, you know? And then I apply that to the rhythmic configuration I had. And then I started coming with harmony. Harmony means uh, more notes to support melodic line. And then by doing it, I starting to gradually build we call piano score. So I don't worry too much about other instrument sound at the point, just write mm-hmm. for structurally convincing with a piano line. And then after all these uh, musical ideas are kind of manufactured, then I use different uh, tasks, which is orchestrating. So all the piano uh, lines are now, kind of reshuffled with different color of instruments. So that's the sort of final stage of uh, making this whole piece together. I hope it makes sense.
1: <laughs> it does. I'd say and it sounds like a lot of work. more so than just, you know, <laughs> if you were just an acoustic guitarist, this would be a lot easier than that. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm curious. You know, I think opera, like a lot of things at one point, was incredibly popular. And you can tell, mm-hmm. the story you're telling, a lot of stories I know from opera they're very melodramatic and there's just great drama in them. And and they used to be this great popular entertainment. But I think a lot of people see it as like this elite thing and I would never go to the opera. So Mm -hmm. make your pitch to me as the average person on the street, why they should go to your opera and also why they should start going to opera in general, why they should become opera lovers.
2: Oh, (laughs) it's a really hard question. And, you know, these days opera becomes a little bit uh, different in a way that when we think about little older generation opera, which is much larger scale and huge forces, these days, uh, for so many reasons, it gets a little smaller scale, and sometimes one or two singers, if not three or, you know, four and then orchestra members are much smaller chamber size because it's more accessible and more manageable and they can tour better. Mm. They can go to different venue instead of a huge, large uh, theater. Just can go to, you know, maybe you can say the mm. museum or in you know, a smaller uh, black theater. So it has been transformed in many ways and people wanting to find like you said, you know, it's like a wearing tuxedo and really uh, upscale kind of attendance is one thing, but it's more now I can just go with my jean and just sit in, you know, smaller scale opera and operatic scene to Mm -hmm. appreciate and enjoy. And I think uh, if I say somebody to come to see what my opera is, I would say it's still not huge scale opera, but Mm -hmm. manageable size and the story is very compelling and it's universal message to promote women's right in education so it's not you know irrelevant topic and it's very powerful topic as well and so you know message is one thing and then the medium I used is uh, not necessarily very easy for a layman's ear. But it's also a lot of people say it's very evocative and very challenging, you know. So I think that can trigger interest, you know, among people to see what mm-hmm. sounds what sounds they will hear, you know. So I think that would be a really good pitch material to invite uh, people who are not that much familiar in new music or contemporary music scene.
1: I have to say, I think that's a great pitch. And I know people are probably saying, well, yeah, I don't know, but... Something like that sounds like it's really expensive. Guess what? It's free. It's a free concert. You have to pay nothing. To- right. So no, one more reason to go. Uh, so I'm curious, this, this family story, which is incredibly powerful. First of all, I would have thought the father who didn't, who wanted her to get married and sort of the the, the patriarchy in general would would want to... Make the story disappear, right? I mean, it clearly doesn't show them in a good light. It sets up this uh, kind of clash with traditional values.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How was the story sort of passed along in the family? And did the story, were you sort of inspired by it as you were growing up to lead a different life than you might have led otherwise?
2: Yeah, I, I really appreciate your question because, like you're saying, you know, the father figure thinking, even though uh, his daughter died, having mixed feeling about losing daughters, of course, but he was more angry and upset about the fact that she ruined the family name, you know, and it became uh, sort of tainted the entire uh, sort of history of what this family name should up for. So, in you know, the opera ending with his anger toward her, not necessarily feeling bad or I should have been, different kind of a uh, uh, regret is not really portrayed there in in real life that when i was young my mom told me your uh, grand aunt actually died out of starvation and it was also sort of under taboo you know nobody wanted to really bring out mm-hmm. as okay. a really great story and nobody wanted to really say right. Because it was really difficult to share among family members. So, but it was still because my grandma's sister, she was my grandma's sister. So my grandma had very strong and vivid memory of losing her own sister and herself was also marrying someone she didn't like to live that way herself, but she didn't have enough you know, probably courage or guts to follow her sister's path. So she got married and she had uh, one son and four daughters. One of them was my mom. So for her,
0: Hmm.
2: it's very interesting story for her. Even though she didn't live up to the way that she wanted to live, her way of seeing her daughters, she really wanted to make her daughters to, get educated and get mm-hmm. a profession. She was very strong mm-hmm. about that. So all my mother's siblings, including my mom, all had their profession, it's, which is very rare in my mom's generation, especially in Korea. And all my aunts are, you know, in in their profession, they're, you know, professors or, you know, the, the soft engineer, Person, I mean, they're working for the you know academia. They they were strongly encouraged to look for and get their own job. And my grandma was very unique in the sense that it's not just to get educated. She was very strong about female figure has to have a job to support financially themselves, Mm -hmm. and she believes that's the only way they can stand up to. Uh, And they, she doesn't like the fact that daughters are being fed by her husband and being home. Mm -hmm. And she was very strong about financial independence, you know, and that, interestingly, that was also my mom's sort of uh, educating, you know, without really even, she was having that like, okay, I'm going to educate my daughters to have a job. It's just like, it was norm for her. We we never question that we'll just get married, you know. (laughs) So in in a way, it's very strong in my family tradition tradition that females are not supposed to just get married and find a wealthy husband to get easy life or anything like that. We just never, I never even questioned not having my own profession or job. So it's interesting to see what is norm, you know, when and then I came to realize why. When I got older, I could see the connection with my grandma and her sister's death and what she really wanted for her own daughters. And then my own mom's generation continued to see that as an important thing. So I'm thankful for being uh, grown up in that family, even though the story is very tragic. And, you know, These days, education in Korea for women is not that tragic at all. I mean, everybody goes to school and all that. But there's still some type of distinction that you're getting educated is one thing. But financial independence is not that much addressed, you know, yet. So I really feel like my grandma was way ahead of her time to bring that very important notion of what it means to be financially independent as a person. Not just, you know, female alone, but anyone, you know, to be able to support themselves and to be able to not to rely on someone else's life. Because I think financial independence really makes sense to me. And that is important factor for my family, you know. So I'm grateful for that kind of awareness earlier on in my life.
1: Well, you know, it's a, it's, uh, pretty incredible. I mean, even though obviously her story ended tragically, what a profound impact it had on mm-hmm. the family and the rest of you and how that really changed the trajectory in ways that it sounds like it really freed you up to pursue your own course and not just live out this traditional, traditional role. So that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's incredible. That's, you know, fantastic that it, at least her sacrifice had this great meaning that's, that's had this, uh, you know, profound influence over what came after.
2: Yeah. And, you know, my aunt who wrote Libretto, unfortunately, uh, had a terminal cancer. So she passed uh, away last summer. So she couldn't really see the premiere, which I'm really, really uh, sad about. But she was the one thinking this should be opera because the story is so compelling. And, you know, as a kind of side joke, it has a death it has a drama, <laughs> it has a conflict, and it has a transformation. So she really, truly believed this can be a wonderful uh, opera story, which I agree. And it turns out to be very powerful. And all production cast and members are all very moved by this story. And I'm very grateful for working together You know, with everyone, especially in my college. So I'm very thankful. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm sorry for your loss with your aunt, and not that this is any sort of full consolation, but uh, you know, I think a lot of artists feel like, and especially if this is based on a family story, that a part of them lives on in their work, and so hopefully this performance in some way is also a way to remember your aunt and and how she helped contribute to all of this as well. So
2: Thank that's, you, uh, thank you, you know. thank you so much.
1: I'm curious when I was looking at your uh, profile. It sounds like your original degree in university was chemistry. Here you are now, an artist, you're a composer. Uh, you do a lot of interesting things. I want to ask about organist, a poet, visual artist. That's a pretty big swerve. I'm curious, can you tell me a little bit about that change?
2: Yes, uh, I wanted to study music when I was very young. I loved music. My dad was a music lover. He was the type of person that having five different records to compare one conductor to other conductor, <laughs> 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 the exact same piece but different conductors. So he was very uh, into music listening, and and so naturally I love you know growing in that environment. But in Korea at the time it was very competitive. If you wanted to go to school, I think it's still like that certain degree. It's very competitive, and you have to sort of you know right line to get right teacher and my parents who are actually literature professors of German literature, they all see that as a recipe for disaster for me to continue to music and they believe I will actually not like music anymore if I go into that kind of very competitive environment. So I uh, listened to them and I believe that they were right and I also liked science so I pursued a science degree which I really enjoyed. And I really think I can still go back in any day if I want to. But what I missed was, you know, creative side of writing and or creative uh, aspect of doing some more of my own uh, expression. I think science field, you can be very creative. But I think I was too young to have that aspect. And I made a joke that you just work really hard not to blow a building in in that age, you know, in the lab. If you are too creative, you will eventually do something. something. So I and also didn't really appreciate the chemistry uh, lab. The very cold and chemical smell wasn't really my, my favorite. So I ventured out, and I since my parents are literature field, I wanted to also study literature. And when I went to study po- poetry. In Korean poetry, I also realized that it was very scholarly-oriented research kind of study, not necessarily creative uh, aspect that I wanted to look for. So it took a long time for me to really land in a field that I can express things, you know. And so I told my parents, you know what, I actually just have to study music. So they... Or eventually saying, okay, if really <laughs> thats the end of your goal, go for it. But then, uh, when I approached a uh, uh, music teachers at, there, and they think I was, they thought I was too old, because I was already, really? uh, yeah, because I was already in a master program age, and they thought, you know, you don't have that much future here. They recommended, since you study literature a little bit, why don't you do music critic? And I felt very desperate to hear that because it's very unfortunate that they first of all they think I was too old. Second of all, they thought music critic is sort of alternative solution, you know. <laughs> and it's 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 a really it's another. It's not thing. actually
1: making music. It's just talking about <laughs> other people who make
2: music. <laughs> right so that's why I decided to come to this country because they didn't issue my age at least I was very grateful so I studied everything here music wise and since then I just keep learning and I'm still learning and I told my own students that you don't have to worry about where you're coming from and how what your background was but as long as you have a dedication and passion and Willingness to uh, learn—it's all good. You're listening to "And Justice for All,"
0: the official podcast of Roosevelt University.
1: Well, so you were an adult. I would basically say, right when you came to America, yes. how old were you when you when you went from when you came, I came, came over? Here to study? 18,
2: Twenty-five.
1: Okay. So I'm curious. So you must, it's a very interesting cultural change, right? From Korea to America. So I'm curious how you found that both just living in the countries and also as someone who's been educated in both countries and someone who does music or has, you know, done music or creative things in both countries. Like what, what, what is that like? Do you feel like it it helps or is it, do you have to translate a little bit between sort of different identities?
2: Oh, yeah, I, I think I would probably answer differently if you were asking me, you know, about when I was 25, because I <laughs> came to realize that I think living in a different country is a great thing for any part, anybody because it really uh, shakes you up about, make you question everything. What you thought was working might not work here, and what you thought was norm might not norm. So you have to reassess Reevaluate a lot of things, and you get to really see who you are through that transition. And mm. I am grateful for experience that I have because one thing that I probably experienced earlier in the stage when I was here is trying not to be Korean-like. I just didn't like mm. a lot of things from Korea about my own culture. So I wanted to negate as much as possible and I wanted to immerse myself to this nation as much as possible. And it wasn't actually that hard because Korea at the time was already sort of westernized in many ways, but on the surface is westernized, but the way I was thinking is not, you know? And my parents mm-hmm. were very independent thinkers. So I also was grown up having that mentality. So it wasn't difficult for me, but as a person coming from the nation, I had a lot of difficult issues with my own culture. So I, as as I said, I tried to dissociate myself. And over time I realized it's okay, you know. (laughs) I don't have to really try to be someone else, you know. So I am gradually accepting who I am as I am and I don't really have to be Korean or American. I don't even know who Mm. I am, actually. (laughs) You know, if I go back to Korea right now, I don't feel like I belong there. And I don't think I'm going to completely belong here either. So I'm just living in this very interesting zone, and I am totally fine with it. (laughs) So identity (laughs) is... I think it's, you know, when
1: you when you shift from nation to nation like that, I think it does make you aware of aspects of your right identity that people of us who just live one country our whole lives can sort of take for granted, right, and not become self-conscious about. But that's probably liberating in a way, too, as a creative person that gives you a different perspective on yes. really both cultures mm-hmm. so that you're kind of liberated from them to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. There is this long list of things you do. You're a visual artist. You're a poet. You're obviously a composer. You're also an organist. I imagine that's very difficult to find a place to practice.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> do you, are all these roles, are they different? You have a really tiny organ in your house. Uh, are they are they different uh, aspects of your creative personality or do they meld in some way? Uh, I'm just curious how those different sort of creative acts relate in your life.
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, it is to me, I didn't really plan on, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. It kind of evolved from... Uh, my way of living. And I started painting because I was having a really serious car accident when I was in doctoral program. And I just was very, yeah, I was going through a difficult time because I couldn't really focus. And I was actually taking off from semester because I could not move around. I was in a wheelchair. And so from all this experience, I wanted to do something different from uh, composing at the time it was for me things to do because it was my thing right but I wanted to help myself to relax from that notion and painting came very helpful in a way that it liberated me and it just kind of uh, made me feel like I'm re-establishing different medium with total no way to judge myself or anything and this poetry is also something that I started doing when I lost my father, who was my almost soulmate, you know, in my life. And I just could not find a way to get back to normal life because just pro- profound change happened in my life. And I just couldn't act like nothing happened, you know. And, but at the same time, I couldn't make entire world around me change for me either you know (laughs) that's where you know the loss of someone who is so dear to you is shaking you up to the ground up and only way i could survive was i started writing poetry every day and that was a, a significant almost a transformation every daily basis because you know i grieved through my poem and Eventually, for about a year, I realized my poetry has grown up to seasonal changes, you know, because there are four seasons, right? And my family also thought it was a very nice thing to publish this poetry with other essays or comments about my father. So we actually released a memorial book, and that promoted me to understand how powerful the exercise, not exercise, you know, you know, kind of go out and gym and exercise, but our mind and everything we can do. And once you are in the field long enough, you tend to have this pattern of you're just doing things routinely and you become more established really? and that is becoming more or less an artist as an artist. See that as not as inspiring. So I notice when I do mm-hmm. paint, when I do write poetry, which is not necessarily my field, I started to really become child again, you know, and really understand it's not about establishment. It's not about doing something for big grant, you know. <laughs> it is really going back to the root of what really creation is to begin with. So for me now, I see all this different kind of expression is for me to learn to be grounded and to be rooted again and to really truly revisit what creative process is so that I'm not kind of caught by very likely pattern that we all develop when we become in the field long enough, you know, in any discipline. So for me to have these different expressions are really helping me to be Fresh, you know, and r- learn something completely different from scratch and not never feel like I know what I'm doing kind of mind, you know, because to me that's also something that I want to watch out because if you feel like, ah, now I know what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, it's a really good feeling, but at the same time, you might regurgitate what you know well and then you feel you're comfortable there and then you are less challenged or, you know, kind of confronted with dilemma issue that is always really good recipe for creative art, you know. So I'm thankful for different expression and different medium, because it always helps me to be uh, humble and revisit why I'm doing these things, you know. So I recently starting to do 3D animation because it was a long journey to learn what goes into. So it again humbled me like I have nothing, nothing. <laughs> and so many things to learn. And then once you start learn, it's so, you know, I mean, it's wonderful that you could find different way of expressing things. And that's why I think I'm determined to keep learning something new and then uh, find myself in a different way to express. That's my life goal commitment, you know. And I'm going to keep composing. I'm going to keep painting and drawing and writing as much as I can to uh, learn who I am, but also helping myself to be born again, you know, as if a new person. So that's really what it's about for me. You know, it has nothing to do with, oh, I can do a lot of things, everybody. (laughs) It's really not about that. And you know, a lot of things are still I'm in a beginning stage, but I'm happy to share what I created. And years later I see, like, oh my god, that's so immature uh, method I use. But then I love to see the changes because once you start doing it and you do it over time, you get to see the progress. And that's that's fascinating, you know. That's always really wonderful way of seeing your our own progress and growth so you know I love it but again once you are sort of established and people love that because then it comes with a lot of different joy you know you get commission you people recognize you as a this and this you know so you're starting to having the different kind of uh, engagement you know bigger ensemble bigger audience and all this but Deep down, I don't think you can fully grow unless you come back to this very beginning stage yet again, you know?
1: No, I I think I really, I I understand exactly what you're saying. I think, uh, you know, you get a certain amount of hard-won expertise and it's you're reluctant to give it up or to move from that field and it can really cut you off from things. And I think what you said is, such a fantastic endorsement of basically being open creatively that it it, first of all helped you heal personally in different ways, which I think, you know, all of us could use more healing and Mm -hmm. also keeping you kind of, you know, fresh and engaged as an artist in the sense that you don't feel like you're, you know, once you've established what the thing you do, you have to keep doing that thing that you can do something else, even though it's humbling as well. I think that's really i think that's a great message for other people who want to be creative and, and try to pursue a creative lifestyle
2: yeah i i encourage anyone they i mean we don't have to be artists separately i mean i think we all have those things in our ourselves in little seed and a lot of times adults i've noticed over time adults have very higher expectation of the among themselves and they haven't seen a lot mm-hmm. of different things so when they start messing up or seeing themselves as a beginner they cannot tolerate because it's too too painful <laughs> so they immediately quit <laughs> i think that's uh, embarrassing
1: that's... right it's like i'm supposed to figure this all out.
2: <laughs> yeah so i guess for me i have a more tolerance of my messing around in beginning stage i i actually open to it so that i think that helps <laughs>
1: So I'm curious. Roosevelt University, obviously, social justice is the essence of who we are as university. And in music, like in many fields, there traditionally has been a lot of dominance by uh, men. You have the idea of the you know all powerful composer, or you know the uh, the lone genius, uh, you know uh, director, those sorts of things. Can you tell me a little bit about being? both a woman in this field and a Korean American in this field. I'm curious how that's uh, shaped your experience and, and sort of what, what thoughts you have about that.
2: Yeah, this is very interesting because composers are, I guess, you know, there are a lot of male composers and there are a lot of uh, female composers too. But it's for me personally, I do not really think about myself as a female or male or, you know, where I belong. I just dive into what I really like to do. And as you heard uh, in my previous life experience, people rejected me because I'm old or because I'm female, you know, etc. But those things really didn't make me feel stop what I'm doing. So I think in a way those comments are, uh, more like a noise and I didn't pay attention to, to those noise. I just keep going mm. with what I wanted to do, but it's not that simple and that that's not that easy for some people, you know, especially younger generation, those can really harm their future and they just keep up, you know? So it is never, never a good idea to discourage young personnel with any kind of judgmental comments, you know, and especially composition field has been more dominated by male. And I don't know why, (laughs) you know, but in a way people associate with composing with more male field and performing is more female field. But those arbitrary decision or division is, really uh, unfortunate because it really is not about uh, gender or even age or even where you're from it's actually some people are more prone to composing because the way of their thinking or how they think about things is more inclined to the job that you can do in composing because composers are the ones to shuffle around ideas and design thoughts and you know, compare and how to build structures, and these are you know very important skill set. So it's not about gender; it's just whether individual is in, inclined to think that way. You know, it is an important thing to pay attention to. So I, for me, I didn't really see myself as a. I'm not qualified or capable. Because I'm a woman, because I'm Asian, I really didn't let those things to lend me down. To whenever I decide something, I just went for it. But I could see as an educator, and it's very, very important as an educator to prejudge. Oh, because you're a woman. Oh, because you're coming from there, and then we define what they should do is is a absolutely something that we should avoid. And, you know, there's a tendency in some people in how they think, what they think. We have to also honor their tendency too, because we cannot make everybody composers either. So if they don't want to be a composer, we cannot force them to be a composer, but honoring who they are, what they are, but also allowing them their potential and then sharing what really involves what you're going to do in this field and openly discuss and see whether they are actually, you know, interested is very important assessment too. So I do not believe in random kind of categorizing and creating this very specific rule for what, who should be, who shouldn't be, you know, unless we are really exploring individual and their capacity and their willingness and their, uh, interest. only then we can see whether it's actually good field for them or not you know and so I think uh, any kind of superficial judgment based on gender, age or uh, their background, all these things are to me very uh, immature way of seeing the path. And I luckily I was able to filter through those noise you know that other people gave me. But a lot of people, or even young people, might not be able to do that. And I, again, I was very lucky. I was very lucky, but I wouldn't allow these things, you know, for young people, especially. It's it's very difficult for them to push through, you know.
1: Well, I have to say, given your family history, I think uh, no matter what the obstacle, you,
2: uh, <laughs> you don't
1: see a very impressive uh, tenacity. <laughs> that seems readily apparent in not just your story, but the story of the rest of your family. I have to say it's been fantastic talking to you. I'm sure if your great aunt and aunt were looking down upon you now and could see what you're doing with Pale Courage, they would be incredibly proud and delighted uh, to see this all brought full circle and have the story told. I hope everyone who listens to this We'll make sure they get out to see Pale Courage again. That's going to be on March 18th and 19th at 7.30. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: <laughs> And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.